This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Today's episode has been sponsored by Jay McLaughlin. Jay McLaughlin is a timeless lifestyle brand with incredible style and a spirit of connection. I am obsessed with Jay McLaughlin and have been so honored that they are sponsoring my Zibiverse tour. It just so happens that the tour goes to so many communities and areas of the country that have Jay McLaughlin stores. And I love that the brand is philanthropic through Jay McLaughlin's local and loyal programming host store events to give back to organizations that are meaningful to Jay McLaughlin's local communities. I also love the fact that the clothes are just so chic. They make me feel polished and modern. And the best part is that most of the line comes in fabrics that don't wrinkle. I especially love the dresses, the cashmere sweaters, the other sweaters. You'll see them all over my Instagram. I typically tag at Jay McLaughlin. And so you can check it out. It is absolutely one of my favorite brands and I am over the moon excited to be working with them. In fact, I want to share the love with all of you. Jay McLaughlin is giving 20% off new customers and listeners of my podcast with special code ZIBBY20, capital Z-I-B-B-Y 20. That's 20% off for new customers and listeners of the podcast with special code capital Z Zibby 20. Take advantage of it today. My favorites are this white open long cashmere sweater that I've been wearing on every flight that I've taken on this tour. I have a blue with light blue horizontal striped sweater, several dresses I even wore on Morning America. Check it out. Jay McLaughlin. Thanks so much. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com and definitely check out those shows as well. 
Jojo Moyes is the author of Someone Else's Shoes, a novel. She is the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Giver of Stars, Still Me, Paris for One, and other stories, After You, One Plus One, The Girl You Left Behind, Me Before You, which by the way is one of my favorite books, The Last Letter from Your Lover, The Horse Dancer, Night Music, Silver Bay, The Ship of Brides, and The Peacock Emporium. Also a screenwriter, Jojo lives in London, England. All right. Welcome, Jojo. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Someone Else's Shoes, your latest novel. Thank you for having me. Oh, I've been a fan of yours for so long. Like everyone in the world, I read me before you and cried my way through and watched the movie and followed all of your books and and everything. So this is a huge joy for me. So thanks. Oh, thank <laughs> you. That's so lovely to hear. Thank you so much. Sure. I've been out of the loop for about three and a half years. So it's, it's a nice reminder that people actually do read the things I write. <laughs> no, absolutely. I was so excited when I saw you had a new book out and um, couldn't wait to gobble it up. So as thank I you. Um, Can you tell listeners what Someone Else's Shoes is about? Yeah, it's a book about two women who meet, uh, who are very different, who are at very different points in their lives. One is a wealthy American married to a very wealthy and probably quite selfish man who has just discovered that he plans to divorce her. The other woman is a rather downtrodden midlife woman whose husband is depressed, whose boss is a bit of a bully. And she's just, in England, we call it the squeezed middle. She's a woman who's trying to cope with the demands of fractious elderly parents and her daughter and work and juggling and just struggling to keep on top of it all. Well, I have to say, we were just talking about another book about divorce before we started, but in terms of divorce, this is pretty mean. I mean, this is aggressive, (laughs) aggressive treatment. I feel like my heart broke when Nish was at the divorce lawyer trying to make sense of how unfair the treatment was from this sort of come from... I had had a couple of dinners with a very serious divorce lawyer Mm. over here, and she told me the many ways in which very wealthy people basically divorce usually the wife and the games that they play and it was horrifying I mean the stories I heard what I've actually written is not as bad as some of the things she told me because I thought you would consider them unbelievable but for example in one case a man had brought in his wife of 35 years and got her to agree to a prenup or a kind of post-nup prenup in which case she agreed if they ever split up to receive a bag of sugar, a kilo bag of sugar. And she agreed. What? And Yeah. And you're just thinking, what is the thinking here? And the divorce lawyer said, you know, I knew what was probably going to happen down the line. But if this woman agrees to it, all I can do is advise her, but I can't stop him doing it. Yeah. And, and stories of men who, if they lose what they consider to be a hefty amount. They just pursue the courts, pursue it through the courts globally until nobody has any money left because they just cannot be seen to lose. Even even his own money. Like he'd be willing to go bankrupt just to... Yeah, because a lot of these high net worth men, especially, it's about winning and losing. Their whole lives are about winning and losing and they cannot bear to be seen to lose. So Carl Cantor, my, my male lead in this story, is one of those guys. Wow. Rather unsavory. <laughs> yes. he, I mean, everybody else is pretty nuanced, but he's just an out and out bad guy. And the thing is, 
I heard so many of these stories and my editor said to me at one point, is he just too bad? And I said, honestly, compared to the stories I've heard, not really. Yeah. Gosh. Is that where the idea even came from or was that research that you did once you had the idea for this? No, that was research. The idea originally came from a short story I wrote about 15 years ago, just about a a rather downtrodden woman picking up the wrong gym bag and how it changed her day. And I'd been asked about this story in Hollywood uh, a few times by different production companies who wanted to know if I could do anything with that story because it just seemed to be something that appealed to people and I could never see it. And then a couple of years ago, I kind of woke up thinking about that story and I thought, well, what happened to the woman whose bag was taken, Mm -hmm. the woman who owned the fancy shoes? And as soon as I saw it as a story of two women whose lives intersect, I saw it like Vanity Fair or... You know, have you seen the film Desperately Seeking Susan? Madonna's oh my gosh, yes. One of my favorites, yes. Yeah, mine too. I just watched it again the other night and it was so good. And so, good. so I just wanted it to be a, a story of ups and downs and crisscrosses and much more of a, a farce than my normal books. Yeah, that's so funny. I remember my grandparents didn't want to let me see that movie in the theater because I was staying with them for the weekend when it came out. And I was like, no, it is so important. Like, I have to see Madonna's yes. movie. This is amazing. It's her acting debut. Anyway, oh my gosh, I remember like it was yesterday. Anyway, crazy. So it came from a short story. Wait, but go back to what you said originally, which is you took this three and a half year break off. What was that about? Well, I have worked round the clock for about 10 years, which I have loved. But ever since the success of Me Before You, I kind of said yes to almost everything I was offered, Um, partly because I had been an unsuccessful novelist for 10 years before that. I mean, my books got published, but I never once charted. I never made it into the bestsellers lists. And so when you finally get the big one, if you're lucky enough to get the big one, I just felt obliged to work harder and capitalize on that. And I did that for, I don't know, about eight, eight, nine years. And because I started working in movies as well, I would start work writing books early in the morning. And then often I would hit LA time at my tea time. And then I would work into the evening. And I was touring a lot, especially in the States, A, because I love it, but B, because it's, you know, important and it, it builds your readership if you actually meet people. And I think I lost track of my work-life balance pretty spectacularly. Mm. And I hit uh, a number of things in my personal life. My marriage of 22 years started to fall apart. My mother was very ill and diagnosed with a terminal illness. And I just, two of my kids were leaving home. And suddenly I just thought, I can't keep on at this pace. I can't manage everything. I mean, you know, typical 40 something woman at the time, just trying to juggle everything and realizing that it was starting to crumble around me. So I gave myself a year's sabbatical. I decided that I would take 2020 off and see my friends and travel and regain a work-life balance. And then we had a pandemic. So basically in that one year, I got divorced, my mom died and we had a pandemic. And so I didn't work for a year, but it was not for the the slightly joyful reasons that I'd planned. It was just really a time of taking stock and getting through and and looking after my family. Do you feel... And I'm so sorry about your loss. Do you feel that coming back to it, like, do you have this renewed energy like you hoped or are you like grudgingly getting back and like, okay, I have to go do this? No, I do now. But I think 
I definitely needed a year away from everything. Mm-hmm. I know some writers, like I'm friends with Jodi Piku, and mm-hmm. during yeah. the pandemic, she was prolific. And we would speak by email and should have written another book. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what is going on? I had to just take the time. And my brain was like cotton wool in that year. I just couldn't do it. And what's been lovely is once I realized what I wanted to write, which was something lighter than normal, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm known for someone who makes people cry. And Mm -hmm. and what I found during that period was I just, I couldn't read or watch anything dark. I needed Mm -hmm. rom-coms. I needed joy. I need light. I needed laughter. So as soon as I realized that was what I wanted to write, it was fine and it was fun and it felt like kind of rediscovering a part of myself just to get back into it. So if anything, today I've actually been having a conversation with my agent about the fact that now I've got my appetite back and things are coming in, I have to be careful not to overcommit again because Mm -hmm. I can see it all starting to creep up again. And now I'm making sure that in my working day, I take an hour and a half out in the morning to walk my dogs, that I maybe meet some friends for coffee or get a massage, you know, actual self-care, which I think it's really easy to forget when you're a mom or when you are of certain years and you're kind of trying to take care of a lot of people. Do you wish that you hadn't said yes to so much or do you, are you okay with how it all played out? No, I'm, I'm really okay with how it all played out. I mean, I wouldn't wish that particular year on well, myself. Right. But you know what I mean. <laughs> but I, no, I, I have had a career, I've ended up with a career that is so far beyond my own wildest imaginings that there is literally not a day that goes by where I don't marvel at it and I'm grateful for it. And I think by putting in the hours for those years and meeting people and doing the traveling, it's enabled me to perhaps have a slightly healthier balance now, but still get to do the thing that I love, which is writing. And what about the balance with the film stuff? Are you still loving that? Or is that is that not your true love? Or are they, con- are they co-loves? <laughs> it's, a really, it's a really lovely balance, I think. Because I think from other writers I know who've been involved in adaptations, it's, it is tricky. It's, a, it's much more about people uh, and having to navigate a kind of uncertain diplomatic <laughs> process. And... Whereas writing is so solitary. And what I love about working in film or TV is that actually you're not the only one problem solving, which is really nice. And honestly, being on a set when your film is being made is about the most fun you can have in a professional career. It just is. I mean, I may have been lucky with the two that I've been involved with, with so far, but I absolutely loved it. And I'm still friends with a lot of the people that I met then. But at the same time, there comes a point where it gets political or it gets overwhelming or it's just a lot. And then I quite like to be able to retreat retreat back into my world where I can play, you know, master of the universe and move my lives around as well, as I want. And I'm the one who gets to say whether there's a rain shower here or a, <laughs> a, a romance there. You know, I'm not dependent on a special effects department or whether the budget will allow it. I can just go go crazy. Yeah. Oh, un- the unlimited budgets of fiction writing. Who knew? Yes, exactly. It would be a huge perk. <laughs> wow, that's so interesting. So when you look forward and you want to make sure you keep everything in line, are you changing 
the or maybe you don't have a plan and you don't have to answer this, but is it the pace of how quickly you're writing books? Like, are you slowing down the pace of writing well, or are you like, how are you thinking about the book production sort of engine? Well, there was a period where I did a book a year mm-hmm. and there's just no way on earth I could do that again now. I don't know where I got the energy. I don't know where I got the ideas. I think it will be at least 18 months between books now. I mean, this has been three and a half years, which mm-hmm. has felt quite strange. And I'm quite glad to be back in it because like a lot of writers, I get a bit untethered if mm-hmm. I'm not working. I think, you know, we we process the world by writing it. And yes. if I'm not writing, I don't know about you, I get a bit scratchy. I just mm-hmm. I need to be doing So, yeah, I probably have slowed down the pace a little, but it's just more about just building in human stuff. You know, I had a a male friend, a director once said to me, he said, you're a machine. And I was proud of that in quite an unhealthy way. I just I just felt like I had this work ethic and I could do it. And I think what the pandemic forced me to do was actually sit with my feelings instead of running away from them on another tour or burying them in work, which is what I think a lot of us do. And writers, I think, are especially bad at work-life balance because we love what we do. So we think, how can it be workaholism when we love what we're doing? But it doesn't make any difference. You can still do too much. So yeah, I, I hope that I get to write for the rest of my life. I mean, that would be my dream, but I am going to make sure from now on that I build in just normal lunches. I never took lunch before. I just didn't, you know, I didn't, I could never go and have dinner with a friend because I said, no, I either have to be with my kids or I'm working. And now I'm building in all that other stuff and I love it. I do love it. Jojo, I feel like my husband talked to you before this podcast and <laughs> told you to tell me all this stuff. It's just what I mean, you do. Yes, this is exactly, I'm like, I work all the time, but I love it. And yeah. people say I'm like a machine. I do this and this and this. And like, oh my goodness. I'm either with my kids or I'm working or, you know, and I, like, I say all these same things and I, it's so crazy to hear you say it and that you've like hit this, the end of this path and what the cost yeah. is. So that's why I was asking like, well, would you do it any differently in the moment? Well, it's, would you it's slow down? A friend once told me about five years ago, her life advice was, if you're a mother, you can only do one other thing well. Mm-hmm. And I really took that to heart. So I contracted out everything that I could. I had a cleaner. I, mm-hmm. I stopped trying to be Nigella Lawson in the kitchen. I, I, had a trainer once a week just to keep fit. But beyond that, I didn't do anything other than the things that I had to do to stay functional. Mm -hmm. And, and now I think, I don't think that advice was wrong, but I think you can do one other thing. Well, plus find some time for yourself and it creeps up on you. So I'm just going to say to you, make sure you build in an hour of me time. (laughs) Sorry, that's such an awful expression, but an hour for yourself every day of lying on the carpet, doing nothing, meditating, or watching a favorite TV show. And actually, I think it's as good for your brain as sitting in front of your laptop. I really do. I think it's going to help your writing. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. 
every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This is so crazy. This is not where I thought this podcast was going at all. It's turned into a kind of therapy. No, it's amazing. (laughs) Turns out I've gotten therapy for myself. This is so, I did not even mean this, but thank you. I I, I sincerely appreciate the advice. And I I feel like I'm going to listen to you more than I have anybody else. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I mean, who knows? You know, the older I get, the more I realize I know nothing. I just know that (laughs) doing it that way didn't work in the long run. It Mm -hmm. it worked in terms of giving me a kind of career platform, but you cannot sustain that level of work. And if you're doing what I'm doing, I'm going to say learn smarter than I did and build in some other stuff now. Okay. Well, I did take a walk today. And I was like, wow, I haven't walked in so long. (laughs) And I was like looking around, I'm like, it's really loud on the streets here in New York. (laughs) Here's a question though. Did you then monitor your step count? Yes. Yes, this is what I mean. This stuff is so ingrained. We have to be, I mean, this is in the book. I just said, is it only women who are so deeply, you know, it's ingrained in us to be useful or productive the whole time. Like I take a walk, but I can't help noticing how many steps I've done. In oh, that yeah. walk. So I got home and I was. It is contributing to my, you know, whether my butt hangs around my knees or not. It's just, it like, just take the walk to be a walk, but it's so hard to do. It's so hard to do. Well, I was like, I just want to see how long it was. I just want to check the distance. You know, it must've been like five miles. And of course it was like 1.9. And I was like, what? I feel like I was walking forever. But I did run into a friend who was going through a hard time. And I was like, maybe this is why the universe put me on this walk today. So I could give this girl, girl, give this girl a hug. But it was a result of it. So there you go. Going back to you and your work and how you were known for so long as, as you said, someone who makes people cry. What is that about? What is that about in your work? Ah, I don't know. I think writers kind of have a layer of skin missing generally. I think we're a bit more porous than a lot of the general population. And so for me to write something, I have to feel it. And what I discovered after me before you was that if I cried when I was writing something, or laughed at my own jokes, then the reader was likely to as well. And that was the first book I introduced real humor and real grief into. And I wondered, I don't know if it's coincidence, but that was the book that took off after eight books beforehand. And after that, I just 
I wanted to put more emotion in uh, because when I read a book, if someone can make me feel something, I mean, I can admire amazing writing at, with a kind of analytical sense. I can read it and think, well, that's a really beautifully crafted sentence. But if someone can make me laugh or cry, I mean, I remember reading Catherine Heine's Standard Deviation on a mm -hmm. plane and laughing so hard that my kids were just mortified. That <laughs> I couldn't stop. I had tears coming out of my eyes. And she's always been a favorite author of mine since, because if someone can make me experience that level of emotion, I don't know if it's catharsis or what, but I'm in, I'm just in. I'm the same way. I just cried at a book yesterday. What? And now of course I can't remember. And I told whoever it was, I was like, your book made me cry. And I haven't cried in a while. So I know it was good. <laughs> well, well, the last book I cried at was a book I totally didn't expect to love, which was Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, is about gaming. It's yeah. about computer game creation. But have you read it? I didn't finish it, but I read okay. most of it. Well, then you won't know the chapter that I mean, but there is a chapter really near the end where I sobbed for about an hour and I really oh my absolutely gosh. didn't expect to. It was so original and clever and yeah, and it was unexpected. So yeah. I've, I've recommended that book everywhere since as a result of that. No, it was Priscilla Gilman's memoir, The Critic's Daughter. That's what I cried at. Ooh, okay. She, oh she excerpted, she had a little piece of Charlotte's Web. When, oh, you know, okay, oh that God, made me cry. Which always time. makes me cry. So yeah. and it was so perfectly timed in her story of like losing her dad. And I was like, oh, oh my goodness. Okay, yeah. I don't know if I'm ready to read that. <laughs> no, it's it's good. It's interesting. My gosh. When you wrote the first eight books and none of them hit the list, I'm yeah. sure they were still, you know, like enough to keep you going and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Why, like, did you ever want to not do it? Did you ever like just get so frustrated? Like, why is it not hitting? And like, what am I doing? Or like, how did you keep going? Or how did you conceive of all that at that time? I was really, I mean, it was frustrating because every book you write, as you know, you put your heart and soul into. It's impossible to write a half-hearted book. I mean, <laughs> I don't know, maybe some people do, but I don't know any. And so you'd put a year, two years of work into this thing and then the cover wouldn't be right or something else would come out at the same time that just steamrolled everything. And I never gave up hope. My agent was always a great believer in me. She just kept saying, we've just got to find the tipping point. But I'm not sure I believed her. And my expectations had gone down and down and down to the point where I just wanted to be able to support my family until they were grown up. That was it by writing. And I wasn't even sure I was going to be able to do that. But I think I definitely have a streak of bloody mindedness in me or determination, something. I will keep doing something unless someone gives me a cast iron reason why I shouldn't do it. And I tell my kids that my whole career has been built on resilience because I wrote three books before I got one published and eight books before I had a bestseller. And I just think in publishing, it's so strange as well. It's so much about timing. It's about luck. It's about whether your cover hits. It's about whether one review suddenly makes something happen. I know so many writers who are great who have never had that moment. And sometimes the stars align and sometimes they don't. But I I can't not write. That's the best way I can describe it. I. It's like I said to you, it's how I translate the world. And 
yeah, I, even if I couldn't get paid for it, I would still be doing it and putting them out on the internet. Not that I want you to tell my publishers that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. You have this like, you know, free thing on the side with a pseudonym or something. You're like, oh, I'm just putting these little stories. No. Actually, that was the only thing I did in the pandemic. I, when I couldn't write, I did write in the depths of the loneliest lockdown. I wrote uh, a short story called Lou in Lockdown, where I revisited Louisa Clark from Me Before You. And we put that out for free just to cheer people up. And that felt like a lovely thing to do uh, because it gave people who were stuck at home just a little boost in a day. And that gave me such lovely feedback that it helped remind me why I do the thing I do. The strange thing I have has been over the last few years is not meeting readers. And it's when you meet readers again that you realize that people are sometimes actually affected by what you do or it has resonance for them. And and that's so important if you spend 90, 90% of your working life alone. Mm-hmm. Did you always know you wanted to be a writer? Like from no. when you were little? No? No, I didn't know any writers. I mean, my parents were in the arts, but they were visual artists. And I. it was only when I'd been a journalist for five, six years that I started to think, well, maybe I have a voice and started just trying. And I think the first three books were really to see if I could get to the end of something and then to try and improve. And I taught myself about pace and character and building a world. And yeah, so, but again, I now I look back and I think, how did I have the energy? I was doing kind of 12 hour shifts at the newsroom and then writing when I came home. And some of that was with a baby. So yeah, now I'm asleep on the sofa at half past nine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Do you ever read to escape? Like you must build that in, but you didn't mention. Are you a big reader or would you prefer to sort of get away from the whole genre when you're not writing? I I love reading. My big love at the moment though is audio books because I'm, you know, I do this dog walk every day, at least an hour and a half, or, or I have spent a lot of time driving I just listen because I find it rests my brain in a way that listening to music or listening to the radio just doesn't. And because I am now the person who falls asleep drooling on the sofa at 9.30, if I wait to read in bed at night, I do that thing of reading a chapter and then forgetting what I've read by the next night. So, um, And there's such talented readers out there now Mm -hmm. for audiobooks. So at least I can feel like I'm vaguely keeping up with what's going on in literature if I keep listening. But then you can't read any of the galleys. No, I struggle to read galleys, um, partly just because when I'm writing, I can't have anybody else's Mm. voice in my head. And if it's really good, then either I'll just get (laughs) intimidated and want to stop or their voice might be really strong and start influencing my own. And so, yeah, I, I only have so much energy. So, yeah, it's mostly audio at the moment. Is there anything related to your parenting through all this or what you've like, what your kids have sort of gleaned from watching you that you're just any advice or anything related to that? Are you, how they've internalized things or the work ethic or the writing? I think they've all seen what has happened because they saw me when I was unsuccessful and now they see me when I'm more successful. I think if they had a complaint given that I was home a lot, which is lovely for them. If I'd had an office job, I might have been gone for 14 hours a day. I was present, but I was not always present because I think when you're a writer, especially once you get halfway through a book, 
half your brain is always processing what's my character doing here well how am I going to un you know unknot that plot problem and I remember you know being told by one of them mum be present and having to kind of switch my attention back to them I think it's been a lovely job to have with children because you know if they're sick you can stay up with them all night and still squeeze in a thousand words somehow I think they didn't love me touring a lot and I don't blame them but it was necessary and now they have benefited because I've been able to pay their college fees and things like that so I think now they really appreciate it but when they were younger I think they found it harder and I never put them in a book. <laughs> yeah, that's the key. Never put anything to do with your kids in a book. I've seen a couple of authors over here do that, and it has been catastrophic for their families. And I would never, never write anything that resembled a family member. It's not worth it. Good point. Very good. I wrote this one draft of a novel and my husband said, well, what did you do with the mom character? I was like, oh, I, I had the mom be dead because I just couldn't worry about her offending my mom well, in any way. You know something, this is a beef of mine, which is in fiction, 70% of moms, I swear, end up dead in the first <laughs> chapter. You know, every fairy tale, dead mom, the goldfinch, dead mom. Like you just, you, there's so many where we have to get rid of the mom at the beginning so that we can just get on with the story. And one of the things I really wanted to do with this book was to write a story between mothers and children where it was just functional, where they loved each other and it was complicated, but, you know, they didn't, nobody died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Keep the mothers alive. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, sorry, we barely talked about your book, but Jojo, this was like amazing. Thank you so much, everybody. Someone else's shoes out now. Check it out. And thank you so much for all the thank advice. Thank you so much for having me, Zoe. Take care. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 